This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, guys. Well, you're probably tuning into this wondering what the heck, why are there are two episodes in my in, in my, my podcast folder this week. Well, guys, I am glad to announce a second project we've been working on. We, last week, we talked about the tournament. I told you we've been busy. We've got at least three big things rolling out this year that are going to be awesome. This is part two. Um, Chase and I have decided to partner with a fishing company to bring you bonus content once a month, now through the month of August. So peak fishing season across the country. Chase and I are going to be producing an extra episode once a month, exclusively sponsored by Cadence Fishing, and I am thrilled. I am th- th- These conversations have been great thus far, and the episode you heard tonight was just super, super insightful. So much information. I had a blast recording it. What about you, Chase? Oh, yeah, man. I definitely had a blast recording this episode. Uh, we talked to uh, Everett. Uh, he was a wealth of knowledge, especially on the uh, show bass, which is something that I really didn't have uh, any familiarity with. So it was good to hear him talk about that. And he definitely threw out a lot of uh, tactic stuff and uh, went kind of above and beyond, I thought, in uh, getting everybody familiar with what that bass was and how to catch them and where you have to catch them. So I thought it was a, a great podcast, and I think everybody will enjoy it. Oh yeah, dude. I mean the the the, the word I would describe for him would be a, a a kayak. Well, not a word, but a statement. A kayak angler that ex, that seeks out big bass everywhere he goes. I mean, you can just tell he he oozes passion to catch the biggest uh, whatever it is that he's after. But for him, big shoal bass, which seem to be kind of an anomaly, um, th- that's his real. That's what gets him up every day. Yeah, that definitely seemed to be a common theme. I, I think he was he was like chasing that like five or six pound mark on the shoal bass, which is apparently a stud shoal bass. That's yeah. uh, that's the number, kind of almost kind of like people when they talk about a largemouth, like they want to hit that ten pound number for a largemouth. Um, he was he definitely targets the bigger shoal bass, and he's doing all of this on a canoe because that's like you said, that's his passion. 
and that's what uh that really gets him going. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we we could talk about a lot about this, but he does a great job of breaking this down. We got some rapid fire questions in there and what we did was we kind of did a profile on him. We talked about the waters that he fished. We hit him with some rapid fire, and we asked him some technical questions on the tail end of this. And this content is going to be a little bit different because it's going to – these bonus episodes might be a little more technical. They might be a little more strategic. And the whole point of that is to, to expose you guys to that kind of technical component of things that y'all ask for on a pretty routine basis. Um, but to also uh, expose you to some fishing content, we said we were, you know, breaking into that into that realm, and and this is part of breaking into it. So uh, before we get to the episode, I just want to tell you guys a little bit about Cadence Fishing. I'm one of our listeners actually made the connection between us and Cadence, and we're going to have him on the podcast real soon, and I'm thrilled to have him on as well. But Cadence Fishing, their slogan is "Go Fishing, Give Back," and what that means is they donate rods and reels to the Cast for Kids program. Cast for Kids is a kids' foundation that seeks to enrich the lives of children with special needs, support their families, and strengthen communities through the sport of fishing. They empower families and communities to celebrate children with special needs and making these children feel valued and loved so that they can overcome the limitations that they experience. I mean, guys, if that doesn't tie right into what we say and what we do and our message, I mean, we're we're always pushing for that next generation. We've partnered with the Sportsman's Alliance that is out there fighting for our right to be out there hunting, fishing, and trapping. Cadence is out there recruiting that next generation and going after people that probably uh, could use a little more love, and, and, and they're doing it with uh, an awesome, awesome way. I think when I spoke to Truman from Cadence, they said that they impact over 3,000 kids annually with events across the country, which is just incredible. Yes, that is. That number 3,000 is incredible. And like I said, it kind of goes along with our theme. They are helping uh, youth get out there and chase tails. You know what yeah. I mean? They're giving them these rods and reels, and they're giving them a chance to go out, um, use them, and uh, get exposed to the outdoors. And that's that's our main goal is getting people exposed to the outdoors and trying to get uh, the stories behind um, their outdoor lifestyle. Absolutely. It fits right in. Chasing Tales. It's in the name. So, well, I'll tell you what, man. Let's uh, let's go ahead and send everybody to that. And if you're interested in learning more about Cadence Fishing, here's the website you need to go to. It's www.cadencefishing.com. They're a direct-to-consumer company based out of South Carolina. You and I have some of their rods and reels. They're going to be sponsoring the Bass Fishing Tournament. So give them a look. See the value that they bring. Consider what they're doing for the next generation and for people who who uh, want to experience the outdoors like we do, but need a little extra help getting there. So, uh, guys, I hope you enjoy the episode and look forward to one of these monthly now and through August. Well, guys, we are back. It's another episode. This episode's a little fun. It's a little bonus episode that we're dropping uh, this month. I hope you guys uh, have been sitting at home thinking, God, I could just love some more content. Well, here you go. Episode, this will make five episodes are coming out this month, including this one. So you get uh, 25% more. It's kind of like the little shampoo bottles at the store. So this week, we have got a guest that uh, I think he's known for two things. Kayak fishing and catching large bass. His name's Everett Park, buddy. Thank you for taking time out of what appears to be a very busy weekend and, and talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate uh, the accolades and and definitely the opportunity. Absolutely, dude. I when we got the when we got connected, I was searching for uh, fishing fishing interviews and people to talk to, and you came up in the recommendations. In fact, I told you that before we hit hit record and. 
we connected on Facebook and talked a little while, and, and you seemed as genuine as everybody said you were, and I was just glad you accepted our uh, invitation. Why don't you, for the listeners, give a little brief history as to, to who you are, how you got into fishing, and, and why uh, shoal bass and bass fishing in general are your, your, your passions? Sure. Um, it's kind of interesting, man. Uh, most, uh, well, not most, but a lot of the fishing community were kind of uh, raised, born and raised uh, fishermen. And I definitely was, but, you know, kind of took a big hiatus from it. Um, I grew up around the coast of Georgia and I actually had three boats before I even had uh, a car. So um, <laughs> it, it's just a different lifestyle down there, though. Um, in fact, all my family that lives there, Thomas's are, uh, that's the community of local crabbers and shrimpers. And, um, so I grew up through in a cast net and, and catching uh, mullet that we smoked and, and lots of shrimp and we would harvest clams and oysters. And, you know, what I'm doing now is just completely different. Um, there was no, <laughs> there was no sport fishing for us. It was just meat fishing. Yeah. And, uh, but it was a really great childhood, and it, it definitely developed a lot of love for the water and just the outdoors in general. Um, I really didn't hunt back then uh, at all. My dad was just such a hard-working family man that he really had to kind of give up his, his hobbies with fishing and hunting to take care of us. And um, So when I got old enough to kind of branch out and, and get into other things, I played golf a lot and then got into motocross and um, make a long story short, um, my beautiful wife put up with a pretty traumatic injury from just something really stupid that I had done, um, uh, on a dirt bike and ended up, uh, setting me back and having to change a lot of my hobbies and my plans and, uh, made some promises to her that, that I feel very strongly about still about taking better care of myself and, um, kind of scaling back some of my more, uh, adventurous activities. So, um, that meant no more motorcycles or dirt bikes. And, uh, that was kind of a big chunk of my time, my recreation. And, uh, I had some buddies that were getting into kayak fishing at the time. And I really didn't have any interest in it, to be honest with you at first, because again, I came from, you know, my first boat was a, a glass dream. My next, but you know, a couple boats were aluminum, um, you know, John boats and, and V hole fishing boats. And it just, it, didn't really add up to me because I was still like a lot of people picturing, you know, one of these cheap Walmart sit-ins that didn't look like something you'd want to fish in all day. Um, <laughs> and they are. And so <laughs> they are exactly, but they showed up with some, you know, slightly nicer kayaks um, and wasn't really what I expected. And I was still wearing a sea collar at the time for my spinal cord injury Um and ironically enough, man, I, we actually got like, we all got tickets that day <laughs> um, for having alcohol in a lake we weren't supposed to. And, uh, I think not having life jackets, which I don't recommend, but you know, just, just silly little stuff, but it made for kind of a polarizing story. And, and we all had a good time. I think we all caught some fish and it, it just sort of got me hooked on, um, the culture of it as much as anything. And, and then, you know, over the course of the following year or two my competitive side got kind of involved and when I started seeing just you know how fun it would be to to catch challenge myself to catch better fish not just catch fish and um so I'd say within like a year of of starting to kayak fish and just kind of bass fish more than I ever had before 
I was, I was doing tournaments and, um, cashed a few smaller checks here and there and, and just, you know, did overall better than average, I guess you could say. Um, but I do want to give a couple of disclaimers up front and say that I'm by no means an expert. I mean, I'm really a baby in a lot of ways compared to guys that I know that have fished religiously their, their whole life. And, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is that my personal life, my wife, uh, and our faith, that's what comes first. And, and I do have a really busy job as well. So I don't have as much time to dedicate to it. Um, but when I do, I put everything into it. So the last five or six years, uh, I guess six years now I've been, I've been fishing uh, a lot more seriously and a lot more passionately and just trying to absorb as much information as possible. So I guess you could say, if anything, I, I'm trying to be a student of the guys that I know that really are uh, extremely experienced. And so I'm very fortunate. I know a lot of ex- just really good fishermen and they've taught me a lot. Um, there's some things I have picked up on my own too. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have a lot of things going that help me to, to be able to do it and to be, uh, you know, fairly successful, I guess, in a relative sense at, at catching big fish. So that's what I love to do. You know, I, I, I think that, I think it's safe to say that, uh, that's a first for me that your first, uh, serious experience out there resulted in, uh, violation tickets. And that was a positive <laughs> thing for you. I think, I think that could have easily gone either way. That's, that's hysterical to me, man. Yeah. It's just kind of who I am, man. I seem to always stumble into something crazy <laughs> and funny and, you know, that makes it a lot more uh, you know just i guess a comfortable for me in, a, in an ironic way sure yeah well i think that's one of the things that uh intrigues me a lot about kayak fishing especially for bass but just in general is i'm a super competitive person um unfortunately i was not gifted with any size i'm a, a relatively short stout fella so there's not a whole lot of sports designed for me but uh, with the rise of, like, these KBF tournaments and stuff, man, like, I, I, I could see myself kind of getting sucked into that during the spring, summer, and fall, mm-hmm. man. I, I just oh, – uh, yeah. how briefly, because I think we'll touch this kind of later with some of the questions that, that are going to come up, but briefly, how easy is it for someone to get into, um, let's say, amateur uh, level for, cast, for bass fishing out of a kayak? Well, out of a kayak, man, I mean – I don't mean to sound disrespectful to the community because I actually, you know, I would say over the last five or six years have been a big part of wanting to help grow it. So there's no disrespect to me saying this, but, you know, generally speaking, um, most of us are amateurs in the kayak fishing world, you know. So I would say if you want to go straight to national and regional level events with, with KBF or any other large trail, um, it's wide open. I mean, anybody can, can get in there. The the main thing is having, you know, a mindset and equipment, um, and just the time, you know, the time and the resources, that's such a big part of it because, um, to be successful at anything doesn't require just skill. I mean, it requires time. Yeah. Hey, okay. All right. We're all back guys. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty there. I'm not sure what happened, but, uh, uh, we dropped a call, but we're back. So, um, Chase, I'm not sure what you heard last, but uh, Everett was uh, saying that it takes some some decent time and and 
energy, I believe, to to get into the amateur leagues and be competitive. But it seems like uh, it, it's still a readily attainable thing. Is that what you were trying to summarize there, Everett? Yeah, I'm not saying anybody can be great at it, but I'm I'm saying that you know anybody can do it, and anybody can do it on a competitive level. Sure. And really, what it requires is a commitment of of time more than anything else. And um, you know, a lot of the events now are just require travel and they're not super expensive you know they're still relatively affordable in the big picture and the entry fees and and even lodging and stuff like that is is not astronomical by any means um especially in comparison with elite level um right bass boat tournaments and stuff like that but even still though i would say that you know the biggest commitment any person makes is with their family and with themselves you know, to get out there and understand the conditions, be prepared and, and, uh, get plenty of pre-fishing done. Absolutely. So let's, let's back up a touch. We're going to probably end up finding ourselves back in the, in the fishing component things here. But, uh, today I, I think, uh, we're going to be kind of honing in onto a favorite species for you of the black bass genre. And that's going to be shoal bass. Am I correct in that understanding? Yeah, I mean, I, I love to catch big largemouth, and, and you've probably seen, yeah. uh, especially Walt, that I I love to catch big anything, I mean, whether it's giant <laughs> bull reds or giant snook or, I mean, I've had fun catching a giant catfish, you know, so whatever whatever's big, you know, the tug is the drink, so I don't really care necessarily what it is always as much as, as attaining what I'm looking for, you know, finding what I'm looking for, but I live four miles from the Flint River, which is um, unquestionably the most uh, natural habitat for shoal bass in the world. So it's kind of no surprise that I've developed a, a special love for it. It's kind of, it's my hometown fish, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then trying to hone the skill set to where I'm catching bigger fish has really been a dividend of knowing guys that were good enough to teach me the things that I wasn't just picking up on my own and, and then using that to develop my own style and, uh, and share styles, similar styles, pick up things from, from other people. Um, but they really are unique fish. Um, so I guess, you know, if you want to talk about them a little bit, I, I don't mind at all talking about largemouth though, too. I think the majority of the listeners probably that that would be their, their uh, target species, so we can definitely talk about that too. Well, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think let's let uh, time dictate w- what direction we go. You know, I think uh, since you have such a passion for shoal bass, it would be a, a, I think it'd be a do the listeners a disservice if we didn't dedicate the the time to you know helping them understand why. Um, sure. So, for the, for the listeners that that aren't familiar, maybe with shoal bass or bass in general, they're they're tuning in. We have a lot of we have a lot of people that tune in that aren't even outdoorsmen. They just enjoy hearing the stories and the experiences. What makes a shoal bass a shoal bass? And, and why is, is the, the Flint river basin the primary place that you can find shoal bass? So, uh, I'd say the most common misconception is that they're smallmouth. So when people see the patterns on a shoaly, you know, they're similar enough to a smallmouth that it is very easily, uh, mis uh misunderstood you know and when people see it they're usually looking more at the patterns themselves and the colors um, but the biggest difference that you'll notice with a shoal bass is the mouth so um 
when a, a largemouth has its mouth closed, you'll notice that the jawline is usually behind the eye. That's kind of a rule of thumb for most people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a small mouth is always ahead of the eye. And in most cases, like a spotted bass is usually going to fall ahead of the eye as well, similar to a, a small mouth. Um, there's so many hybrids and so many different multi-species blends these days that, you know, it's hard to always use that as your barometer. But as a rule of thumb, that's that's an easy way to identify. Okay. Um, however, with a shoal bass, their jaw usually falls under the eye or even sometimes behind it, similar to a largemouth. So they, they do have a bigger mouth on them, um, not as big as a largemouth. But what it kind of creates for is just a, an ultimate predator. So uh, bass in general, black bass, obviously, everybody knows. They usually rule the water that they're in um, in terms of uh, being a predator. But the shoal bass is on a whole other level, and that's why in the waters that they live in, for the most part, they're the dominant fish. Um, in our area, they have just become, you know, now obviously who knows how many years it took for their species to refine into what it is, right. you know, something that's so distinguishable. And, and where it originated from is kind of hard to say. I mean, obviously there has to be some shared genetics with smallmouth. Um, but it's a very specific and very unique species. And we do have a lot of other similar ones, red eyes, Swanee, Ultimaha bass, but none of them gain the size that the shoal bass does. And really, I would say at least in our area, which would include the Okmulgee river, um, the Flint river, the Chattahoochee river. And of course there's tons of tributaries that connect and other rivers that connect that, that share shoal bass, but because of it being just a perfect uh, habitat for them, the size here is, I would say, on average, as good or better. In, in many cases, I would say better than smallmouth. Um, and, and that might ruffle some feathers for me to say it, but it's the truth. <laughs> it's going to, um, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, our, our state record shoal bass is 8 pounds, 12 ounces. Wow. So if you look up state record smallmouth, you know, even in states where smallmouth are very common, that's pushing it, you know, yeah. uh, for sure. So, I mean, that in itself says a little bit, um, but it's not at all uncommon um, to see some really big ones caught. So I would say a lot of what I have learned in terms of fishing them uh, comes from, you know, a handful of guys that are the experts. Um, Alan Ragsdale is a guide here in our local area for fall line guide service and um, he does let me kind of tag along with him and, and help guide in some scenarios, but just, he went to high school with my wife and one of my buddies and has taught me a, a tremendous amount. Uh, but he's also really taught me a lot about conservation of the species and understanding that there's really a lot of effects that we have on these fish that um, kind of go unnoticed, but they really have a huge impact. And the biggest, of course, no surprise is uh, limits and, uh, people that don't really <laughs> respect them. Um, so we have a pretty good population of country folks around here that were raised, uh, eating from the river. And, uh, that's true really of all three rivers. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, it's, it's actually healthy for a habitat, of course, but unfortunately what we end up with is people that don't really respect trophy fish themselves. Um, and then certainly don't respect, limits in terms of numbers so um i would love to see in the future it become the state fish it's something that that uh, has been talked about and there's some bills 
that have been in the works. It just hasn't been passed yet. And it's kind of funny because we're the only state that has these fish. So you would think it would be, uh, but then just a lot more protection. Uh, I don't want to see it become a catch and release only fish per se. Um, at the very least would love to see, you know, some better limits actually, uh, you know, enforced. Um, so just to give you guys some rough ideas too on, on what these fish uh, look like and their size and stuff like that. A, a, a typical shoal bass out of the Flint is I'd say your average length is probably around 16 inches, 15 inches, something like that. Um, but pretty, this pretty time small, of year, re- relatively, I mean, that's a, for largemouth. I mean, I feel like largemouth hit that, that standard pretty quick. Exactly. So, yeah. um, the only thing that you'll find though, is, um, the older ones, I mean, they do age much slower than largemouth. So sure. that's a big part of it. Um, almost half the rate of largemouth. So when you catch a shoal bass that's 22, 23, 24 inches long, that fish is not <laughs> long for this world. You know, it's near the the peak of its growth in right. life. Um, so, I mean, they age these fish out at 15, 20 years fairly regularly. And it's shocking that you can have a fish that old. Um, but, you know, they, they make it sometimes through the stringers. Um, <laughs> get that big. They say uh, out the frying the, pan. <laughs> yeah, that's the main reason for the average lengths, though, man. Is is just uh, the the big ones have to live a long time to get that age, uh, uh, that size, I should say, and they have to to dodge a lot of lures in the meantime. Um, however, we do have between the three rivers here, we have a lot of big fish. So uh, this spring's been pretty good to me i'm not known for catching monster sholies i do catch some some pretty good ones but um there's probably half a dozen or more guys around here that i i would paint the picture of them being the ones who catch the true giants because they catch you know 22 to 24 and a half inch shoal bass uh every single year without fail usually quite a few of them actually wow um, so a lot of it's about, you know, understanding the water, knowing it and, you know, knowing those historically good areas and what time of year that they are really good. And that's the fun part, man, figuring that out and, and learning some of it for myself and shared secrets among the community and stuff like that. And, and that's true anywhere. It's the same thing with smallmouth, um, and to some extent with largemouth too. Um, but the fish just fight like a beast, man. I mean, it's not uncommon. I, I like to fish a lot of different kinds of tackle for them, but it's not uncommon for me to have on a, you know, seven or eight foot heavy or extra heavy swim bait rod and still just get owned like a child by these fish. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, I'll catch one on really light finesse tackle and have a great time. So they're just, they make for an amazing catch. Uh, I've started targeting them a little bit more with a fly rod this year. And that has been incredibly fun because, uh, you know, you can take an 18 inch shoal bass and it feels like a world record. So, so one of the things that I've, I've noticed a lot of people say is that shoal bass, and I think these are from haters, but, uh, and I use that term very sweepingly there. I understand, but, uh, <laughs> that shoal bass don't fight harder, but where you catch them because of the current, they fight harder. It, that's kind of a misconception, right? I mean, they, they genuinely put up more of a fight kind of similar to a smallmouth, right? Definitely. Okay. I mean, you got to think 
Um, so let's go back to the size conversation. So, you know, if you take a large mouth that's grown up in a pond, that's uh, 20 inches long, right? Um, but it's not necessarily uh, fed very well, you know, because it's competing for, for food. Um, it's going to get to 20 inches. I mean, it, you know, unless you have a real problem in a pond, at some point that large mouth is going to reach that age and that length. Um, in the meantime, though, the, the food may not be as plentiful. So the growth in terms of weight and muscle and strength um, is not going to be what it, what it would be if you're just living on a conveyor belt of food, Sure, <laughs> you know, that just packs protein into you every single day. And that's what these rivers do. Every time it floods, you know, we kind of joke about these fish washing down into Apalachicola Bay, but the reality is that it's actually <laughs> a very good thing for the weight of the fish because it just washes more and more of that bait fish that has migrated up into creeks and stuff like that back into the main rivers. And, um, our generation rivers like the Okmulgee and the Chattahoochee, um, those rivers, I mean, that, that's a daily thing for these fish to just be triggered all by instinct with this current. And then they get out there and they just pack on the protein. Um, then obviously you couple that with just the current itself and what you've created is, uh, you know, fish that are built maybe a little bit more like you Walt, but they're, <laughs> they're juiced up, they're jacked up and they've been working out for their whole life. So, um, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's a bunch of fish that are basically running backs, you know? Oh man, that sounds, you know, the more I've, I've, I've heard you talk about it now and, and, and read up on them, I'm kind of disappointed in myself that I haven't made a trip up to Southwest Georgia as close as I am and how unique they are to the region before I end up finding myself somewhere else in the country. I think I was talking to my brother earlier. I think I'm going to have to make a trip up there and, and go after some of these fish. I just, it, it, they just seem like the perfect large, the, the perfect black bass species. They fight hard. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're they, they seem to be uh, no, no shortage of them, even though their size is small. I mean, it's, it's not like you're facing a population issue, right? Right. I mean, we, we definitely have things that are impacting the development of the species for sure. Um, and we can talk more about that, but the truth is that I don't, I don't foresee them going anywhere anytime soon. And the main thing is we just wish we had more big ones and there's ways to do that by controlling it. Um, but the species itself is just, it's been here for so long. It's not going right. anywhere. And, and it, as far as to me, it being just the, the ultimate black bass, the reason is because of the blend of different species that's created what it is. And we do catch some hybrid spotted bass, shoal bass that are just hmm. bonkers strong, so strong. Um, I was in a tiny little creek probably a month ago by myself uh, that required a lot of waiting and, and just access. And I caught uh, like 22, and I would say of the 22, probably 15 were this hybridized species and they're just they're kind of like you've probably heard of, of mean mouth before it's like a you know a, a spotted bass oh yeah uh, yeah yeah small mouth hybrid yep i think that's i think that's the hybrid i've never caught one before but anyway everybody says that fish is just extremely strong and that's kind of what i found with these hybrids they're they're not good for a species because they dilute the, the purity of the sure. species itself. But man, are they fun to catch? Maybe, um, I maybe, caught one, I think was like 18 and a half or 19. And it just felt like I had an eight pound, uh, on. So, well guys, if, uh, if you're listening right now and you're thinking, gosh, I just really want to help this Everett guy out, uh, fish exp- 
exclusively for Mean Mouth and always make sure they find their way into the frying pan. It seems like that would really help him out. <laughs> yeah. No, and these uh, these hybrids, man, are, are definitely, they're a problem. I mean, they, they genuinely are. So, but there's, they're a little bit tough to identify. And so, you know, our best advice would be to make sure you know before you keep anything. And the spotted bass population around here is really very invasive. Um, you know, it comes from, Alabama, you know, these are, these are Alabama spots. So many of these spotted bass have migrated in, um, but also some of them have been relocated in and I have never seen a species grow so fast. And obviously I'm not as experienced as other people, but the reason I say that is I've gone places five or six years ago and not caught them. And now that's the majority of what I'm catching. Um, so it really helps to, you know, justify why so many people are saying just eat every spotted bass you can catch over here yeah um i don't necessarily abide by that completely because i i really like catching them a lot um but there's some fisheries that have a real good balance um the okmulgee to me has got the best balance of all three species because you know i've caught trophy size largemouth spots and shoalies in the same day Mm. um, in the same stretch of water so you know, it's possible for them to cohabitate and have a good balance. Um, I think I had one day, my best day on the Okmulgee was probably just around 100 or 102 inches uh, of my best five. Wow. And that was two 20 to 22 inch largemouth. Um, I had two big Sholies and a big spot that day. And for you to have all three of those on different kinds of structure in the same body of water, just it goes to show that if if a proper balance can be reinforced and limits, um, I think I think all three of these rivers could be really well balanced with all three species. So now, uh, go ahead, Jace. I was giving you a second there, buddy. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only questions I have is it seems like uh, from what I'm looking at is there are some shoal bass actually in Florida. Oh, really? And it's near the Chipola River, oh. which is near you, Walter. Oh. Um, it says the state record is like five pounds uh, when I was looking it up. So that's that obviously isn't as big as the ones up yeah. where uh, Everett's at. Now, when you're targeting these fish, are you, are you strictly fishing for all of these fish in a kayak? Is that what you're doing now? Are you a straight kayak or do you fish out of a boat or what are you using to go after these fish? Yeah, for me, man, I, I um, you know, I've been fortunate to have this amazing relationship with new canoe for many years that's grown into something that I am very passionate about and feel like it's very tool specific for a lot of different things that I do. And uh, Walt, I think you've got one. I sure do, man. I love that thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is just, it's a tool for me. Um, and I've, I've had this conversation with people before about different things like a trolling motor, for example, and just explain to them, you know, that it's everything that I use when it comes to fishing is just a tool or a weapon, however you want to describe it to accomplish something. So for me, I don't feel like I can access many of the spots that I want to with anything, but a kayak. Now I will say I've seen some pretty awesome stuff done in jet boats, um, around here lately. Um, not to beat a dead horse, but fall line guide service. He, he guides out of one, but I've got a, another buddy that's got a really really nice um rock proof with that rotax and i mean i i'm blown away with what they can do during 
flood levels and, and just high water. But generally speaking, all of us, including those guys, we're going to spend the majority of our time in a kayak around here because our rivers are pretty shallow uh, with the exception of flood or generation. There's lots of rocks that right. have to be navigated around. And then the stealth factor of, of these fish is obviously extremely valuable. I mean, being able to slip right up to a hole where these fish are at without being noticed is um, extremely important. So I do wade fish once in a blue moon, but even still, I don't, I'm not able to bring as much of my gear with me when I do that. So I would rather bring, if nothing else, my smallest kayak, which is the Flint by New Canoe, that I can just you know drag behind me uh, if I'm wading. Um, and then if I've got bigger floats, I'm definitely going to use one of the bigger boats like the Pursuit 13.5 or the Frontier 12. Well, is, is the, the water, water up there clear, clear? Like, like where you're fishing, fishing at? Are you, I mean, it's shallow, shallow so are, are you like sight fishing, sight casting a lot of these fish, or, or how are you locating these big fish that you're locating? It's very seasonal, man. So um, we're starting to get into our clear water season. I mean, today is just beautiful, clear, and dry and the river's dropping fast. So um, I would say by the late part of next month, the water's going to be pretty doggone clear at the latest. I mean, it really just depends on on flow and and rain. Um, But, I mean, as of, I mean, last week we had some incredible flows that just really dirtied things up. I don't know if you guys saw, but the Flint went from 7.5 feet to 28.5 feet. In, in like 36 hours. Is that is that when you made that post about fishing beds and it was a dealership of trucks underwater? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably kind of a bad joke. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I'll take you back on that one. That was uh, – he posted a photo of a – well, I'm not going to say it because you seem like you don't want that out there, but uh, it was funny. <laughs> no, I don't mind, man. Yeah, it was a local dealership, and, and uh, all the truck beds were flooded, so I couldn't resist the herd. <laughs> but no, I, I think I heard they they suffered like a million dollars of damage. Ooh. Oh man! So I, I feel for a lot of the areas that are impacted by all this high water. But it's just kind of our our average season now. But in the springtime, from December to March, even into April, we're going to have some record setting rains, um, wow. six eight inches in you know a few hours sometimes. Um, so anyway, that being said. Uh, that's really what it's all about, Chase. You know, the, the generation rivers, they're going to get uh, some kind of color or, or stain to them every time they generate, just from the banks washing out and creeks flowing. Um, and then with rain, obviously, you get even more of that because you get sediment that's washing into the rivers. Um, the Flint is is a different animal because it's 200 miles of unimpeded water. There's no dams. Uh, down to Bainbridge area. So you've got, I would say, I mean, I don't even want to estimate, but it's a lot of creeks that all feed at the headwaters of this thing. Right. I mean, it's it's way more than I can count, really. And that's basically washing out of the southern part of Atlanta, which I know sounds gross. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but... <laughs> Be smart. I love that. Um, oh, my goodness. But, you know, in reality, though, the, the river cleans itself up very well. So the, the northern stretch of the Flint that has shoals sure. is very muddy all the time. Um, the southern stretch can be extremely clear. I mean, gin clear. So just depends on what we've got for rain and depends on kind of what stretch you're flowing. Um, 
all of our shoal complexes have a lot of grass in them. And the one that I live closest to, it's called flat shoals. Um, it is just one giant filter, one giant grass bed. And we've got quite a few of those that are like that. Just beautiful, long. I mean, it feels like you're sitting on a, on a couch when you sit on these rocks. And, um, so there's just, a a lot of natural filtration that creates clear water and gives you the opportunity to sight fish. Um, but you do generally better, you know, with at least some kind of stain because these fish are really, really slick. They'll get to jump on you. Okay. This kind of sounds like our rivers down here. Same thing. We got the Suwannee and Santa Fe and stuff and they're basically seasonal too, or if you get a bunch of rain, it's going to stain the water up some. So, well, so my, one of my thoughts about this is, you know, you're fishing a river no one likes paddling very far against a current. How how are y'all going about uh, getting back home? Are y'all dropping a truck down river and coming back up? Yeah, I mean, shuttles are, are generally the way to go. Um, I do fish by myself fairly often, just logistically well, we it works that. out. We need to change that. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of it has to do with when I go, man. I, sure. I'll go after work a lot when the season's right. And right. so, you know, a lot of times I'm not even – heading that way until close to six o'clock. Um, so it's not uncommon for me to, to find a spot where I can go, whether it's public or private access where I can go and migrate up or down pretty quick and get where I need to go. Um, but I will just say that my pursuit gets used a lot because at 13 and a half feet, it tracks so well oh, that yeah. I can go up current a long way. I mean, I have gone, um, I've gone between like, two and three miles up current before in you know an afternoon uh, on a weekend so um is it work you know are you beat afterwards definitely i've also got a pedal drive for that pursuit i've been using a little bit lately um and it's it's real helpful too about going upstream right um but generally though i mean it's it's hard to beat a float the only advantage that i would say to wading upstream is a lot of times when you're floating down, you got to be pretty strategic not to go right through the areas you want to fish. Right. And kind of notify the fish that you're coming through, which is one of the reasons that these fish are a little bit tougher to catch in the summertime because you get so many wreck boats and floaters that it's impossible to avoid, you know, grandpa and his tube with, you know, <laughs> a stereo blasting coming down through the spot you were going to fish. But, it's still, you know, it's just part of the culture around here too, which is fun, and and you just kind of pick and choose where and when you go. Probably do a lot of laughing it off. Yeah, you know, got to just man. Part, part of the yeah. experience. Exactly. Well, it doesn't seem to be slowing you down any. You're posting all these pictures of big bass you're catching. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's again, it's a lot of it is who who you know, man. I mean, information is just incredibly valuable. So. um I get a little bit of crap sometimes because I, I know so many guides and, you know, just really experienced guys. And, and I think people are oftentimes kind of irritated that I can so easily get the information. But I mean, that's that's really a big part of catching big fish, period. And um, even amongst your I mean, there there's a reason that there's rules with the Bassmaster Elites, for example, about sharing information and talking about stuff because oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh, yeah. Absolutely, man. They yeah, cannot talk, talk to guys. Mm -mm. Well, they can't even talk to each other either. About You're a lot kidding. of stuff. No, there's, there's strict limitations on what they can talk about. Wow. And 
Um, and especially what we can talk to them about. I mean, I have elite uh, pro and MLF uh, buddies and, I mean, I cannot tell them anything about the rivers. Uh, I'm sorry about the waters that I've been fishing, whether that's lakes or rivers or whatever, if they're going to be competing on it. Um, so, yeah, it's how cool. There's a reason. I mean, information is just to me, there's no better lure that you could ever have than just understanding not just spots. I'm not talking about that, but just, yeah. you yeah. know, patterns and and uh, what the fish are doing. Well, that's a good, I mean, that's a tactic and it sounds like you're a responsible guy. So, uh, and you're not like trying to do anything to mess up the fishery. So I'm sure those guys don't mind giving you information. So I don't know about that. (laughs) Uh, They'll throw me a bone, but there, there really are some extremely talented fishermen around here. I'm, I'm fortunate to know a lot of them and, uh, many of them are very generous with me and I appreciate it because it's something I don't take you know, lightly. And I certainly try to protect a lot of the information that they give me, but on a bigger level though, I think everybody around here wants to be balanced with the growth of the sport in such a way that it's growing the right way and, and try to navigate and steer it in such a way that it's benefiting uh, the fish themselves and and our fisheries and not hurting them. I think, uh, I think that's a really important uh, point to make because if you look at, if you look at how quickly um, new members of a community can be added, uh, that doesn't always happen. You know, in the hunting community, we're seeing a little bit of a shrink in, in, in total numbers. But, you know, when Duck Dynasty came out and everybody who's a duck hunter just, like, groaned under their breath. But when Duck Dynasty came out, there was this massive influx of duck hunters that knew nothing about duck hunting. They had a big ch- uh, pocketbook. So they went out and bought up a whole bunch of hunting gear, and they would show up at all hours of the day, and they would ruin hunts, and they weren't properly trained. They didn't understand etiquette. They didn't know what they were doing, and the whole experience went to, to hell in a handbasket uh, darn near overnight, and it stayed that way for a long time. So when I hear about you know introducing new people and, and up-and-comers, kind of, I don't want to say you know moderating how they come in, but making sure that they have good mentors and making sure that they kind of prove themselves before you just start sharing information. It seems like that could be a, a valuable tool in uh, regulating and preventing that kind of experience happening for, for kayak fishing or something. I think that there's definitely benefits to, you know, inviting the kind of people that you want to fish water to, to become conservationists. Sure. And, um, so that's one of the cool things about tournament fishing is that there's a lot more people that are catch and release minded you know cpr catch photo release is the standard for kayak fishing tournaments and i think the impact on any fishery is much better even than than tournaments that encourage people to use a live well um so you know i think it's it's kind of dependent on on who it attracts i think in general though for the most part things are trending in the right direction one thing that i'm kind of surprised that i i didn't see coming and i should have is what a huge impact social media has on, you know, the privacy of certain areas and, and the more protected fisheries. Sure. Um, and you know, that's just something that you only learn from experience and it probably took me two or three years to, to realize what an impact some of that has. Um, but you know, that being said, there's still tons of water and, and I mean, many, many rivers and many, many creeks that have these fish in them. So, 
um, they're not going anywhere. And I look forward to continuing to, you know, cultivate and hopefully help along with everybody else steer uh, new, new folks in the right direction. So let's, uh, let's make a shift from that and let's talk about fishing for shoal bass. There's got to be some difference in how you fish for shoal bass versus largemouth bass. What, what does that look like for you? Especially maybe touch on how you go after it with a trophy mindset. Well, it's uh, target fishing, you know, so you have to find a target-rich environment, which all of us have heard that many times. Um, and then you have to find um, the, the targets that are going to hold bigger fish. So um, if you float a stretch of river that doesn't have a lot of shoals in it, um, it's more slack water or fast-moving water um, that doesn't have a lot of rocks, there's still fish there, Absolutely but they're not going to concentrate as much just like you fish a lake that doesn't have any structure in it. Right. Sure. So obviously with shoal bass being, um, such a ambush predator, they're looking for areas that they can hang out and ambush, which is why, you know, maybe down there by you guys, uh, you know, what shoal bass that are native to that area probably gravitate more toward like wood and things like that but they're still going to find points to hang out, get a break from the current and ambush bait. And um, so for me, a lot of my mindset just derives from looking for ambush points, whether that's wood or whether that's rock and then understanding or trying to, as I have learned um, how that affects bait. So where's the bait coming from? Where's it going to be concentrated to? And then how's it going to be ambushed and then trying to match my presentation with that. One thing that I've found is, you know, you can bonk them on the head, and that does work sometimes. But for the most part, they're really looking for the most natural kinds of presentations possible. And most people probably would mean, you know, would think that that means throwing, you know, bait fish presentations all the time. And that's not necessarily true. Um, I catch them, and I catch them big on anything from giant swim baits to tiny finesse worms or craws. So, you know, it's, it's very dependent upon conditions, depends on what they're eating. Um, and my biggest strategy or approach to them is trying to just figure out where they are based on what those conditions are. And then I can kind of dissect it further. Where are the small ones versus where are the big ones and what are they eating? Um, one rule of thumb for me is if I am really, really catching them, if I'm catching them really good, I just keep doing that. I might scale up in size to try to get something bigger. That is not uncommon, but you got to catch a bunch of them to catch the big ones. Generally speaking. Um, however, you can also notify (laughs) the big ones that you're in a spot really easily by catching a bunch of the smaller ones out of it. So it's kind of a catch 22. Um, like I said before, I'm, by no means the expert at catching the giants uh and i'll i'll be first one to admit i've never caught a six pound shoal bass i would love to but the guys that i know that have caught the six and seven pounders um they're doing a lot of the same things and they've taught me a lot of the things that i do i'm just kind of the bridesmaid Always a bridesmaid. So let's so let's say that someone is is new to shoal bass fishing. They're coming in. They've heard your your spiel about coming in and and your welcoming of any new hunter uh, fisherman. <laughs> uh, 
it's probably best for them not to target a big fish. What, and I think it's probably best that they hone in on, on trying to make one thing work at a time. What would be your go-to advice to them? Like, what, what technique, what style to just catch shoal bass? They're not necessarily going after big ones, but they want to just learn how to shoal bass by catching shoal bass. What would you say they should do first? Well, again, you know, you want to target rich environment. So um, looking for the shoals themselves is is important. Mm-hmm. You know, wasting a ton of time on, um, you know, beating the bank, for example, is not really going to net them much so there's a lot of information out there about you know targeting um fast moving water and most of that's true you do want to find fast moving water they they like water that's got a lot of oxygen in it so if they found a spot that's got grass and fast moving water you're pretty much going to be guaranteed that there's shoal bass in it as long as they're in that river um so that's a good place to start you know looking for fast moving water um and then for me, presentation style depends a lot on, I'd say, three things. One, what's the water level and flow? Two, what's the water color? And three, what are the other conditions going on around me? So um, I'll just give you a few examples if that works. Sure, it's perfect. Um, high and fast, uh, slightly overcast or even cloudy. Fish are generally going to be pretty active because it's high and fast Mm -hmm. Um, they might be only active within the areas that they can because of current break um, but i know i can still throw something with some action to it Um, really really sunny low and clear the fish's eyes don't particularly love collecting tons of sunlight so they're going to find shadier areas and they're going to target mostly stuff that's on the bottom in my experience or at least slower moving baits um so i don't throw a real fast action bait if i feel like the fish can see it or see me coming from a long way off i think that's probably true of you know most black bass though so that's not that newsworthy to most people but um and then i kind of range the two in between so there's times when i'm throwing top water on a clearer day but you'll mostly see me wait and throw top water when there's a little bit of cloud cover and i feel like the fish's eyes aren't going to be quite as, uh, you know, uh, affected by the sunlight. Gotcha. Um, but I do, I do throw top water. I'll carry a lot of rods with me. It's not uncommon, you know, for me to just go sneak away to a Creek and only have three rods, but that would be about the minimum. I mean, uh, it's not uncommon for me to have five or six. Um, and that will help me to quickly figure out what they're doing. Um, but if I had to just kind of to give a few baits away you know there's some that i'm definitely not going to um, <laughs> but if but if i had a few though that i think just generally are going to catch fish um darker colored finesse baits and soft plastic are are almost guaranteed to just catch you something um and then what kind of presentation i'm actually sending those in with would just depend on the flow of the water so you know, if it's a, a black or blue or June bug worm or lizard or something like that, a craw, um, I'm going to dictate how heavy I want to go with my weight um, or if any weight at all, you know, just based right. on what the water's doing, how fast it's flowing, how clear it is. And then um, I'd say a spinnerbait, too, to be honest with you. I think that's 
kind of one of those just guaranteed baits for me in certain conditions. So when it's muddier, you can throw a spinner bait and you can usually catch them. I do see some guys catch them on crankbait sometimes, but I just don't really throw them a lot because most of the areas that I fish, I'm going to hang up a lot of grass and I don't like having to paddle back upstream and get my bait when it gets hung up too. Right. Um, and then I do throw, you know, I throw swim baits and other presentations like that that are big and flashy and loud. Um, but, you know, top water baits too, in certain times of year, if you get out there and you got something like a pop bar, um, or a spook, you know, or something that's going to move slower, but make a lot of racket. Right. can be really, really fun and really effective. Uh, I've never caught a big, big fish on that, but it's pretty awesome to have, you know, a two pound Sholey just come blowing out of the water, even if it misses your bait. <laughs> I mean, it just gets the, the heart pumping. So, um, I would say those would be three, three things somebody could start with if they've just never targeted them before. And depending on the day, there's almost no way they're not going to catch him. Dang. Um, well, dude, I chase, unless there's something that uh, you want to touch on beforehand, we got some listener questions uh, that have been compiled that I'd like to ask. And I know we're running tight on time, but I'd kind of like to hit you with some rapid fire too. If you can, if you can uh, stick with us just a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm good. Chase, you got anything you want to touch on any holes that we may have missed? No, no, I'm just glad that they'll hit top water because you know I love uh, top water action. So I was just waiting to hear that little information of yeah, they'll hit top water. So I'm good to go and I'm ready to go fish for them. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, there's a good chance that I'm going this afternoon. I just googled uh, the Chipola River and how close it is to the house, and uh, there's a darn good chance I'm going uh, uh, shoal bass fishing uh, this afternoon. But yeah, go for it. Listener questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right. There were a lot of funny ones, and I only included one because I, I had to hear the answer myself. You ready? Why sure. Did, why did you quit wearing chucks? So just to be clear, in case anybody doesn't know what's, what my buddy Greg was talking about, um, chuck tailors are, you know, converse. So Classics. I, I love chucks. I still own, you know, probably three or four pairs. Um, but because I – fish rivers a lot it makes more sense to me to have one or two pairs of shoes that i would wear all the time than you know <laughs> having my <laughs> flat flat water sneakers and then you know whatever so make a long story short i'm mostly wearing a sneaker that can be really really grippy and uh that would definitely not be chucks so uh, I love them still. they're super comfortable and i'm not i'm not afraid to wear some crazy looking shoes uh if i like them or they're comfortable no matter what the colors are or whatever. Um, but I, I definitely don't wade fish and chuck. I wouldn't recommend it. Chase, do you want to just alternate back and forth? You take one, I take one? Sure. Awesome. All right, question number two. Fishing a wacky rig on a Cinco is very effective on catching bass, but when running an O-ring, the hook faces the wrong way for fish with a subtle bite. What are your recommendations for this situation? Hook faces the wrong way. So I'm assuming that they're saying it's it's going to be sideways in the fish's mouth probably. So, right. you know, which side it's facing, whether it's facing in or facing out or whatever. But it, but I guess they're saying it's not facing up. So maybe this is somebody that likes to face, it likes to uh, fish a jig or shaky head or something that's going to be kind of straight up into the roof of the fish's mouth, which is ideal. I mean, that's that's a great place to hook them. 
but the corner of the mouth is also a great place to hook them. So I wouldn't be too paranoid about that if I were them. Um, and odds are pretty good if they're not really having a lot of success with it. It has more to do with what their hook set looks like than it does with where they're hooking the fish in the mouth. So um, one thing that I've figured out with fishing a wacky rig, which I don't throw it a lot, but I throw it some, um, is that if you set the hook too hard, you're actually just going to pop it out of their mouth because it's going to come out through those hard lips. The corner of their mouth has that nice soft little piece of meat in it. So you'd be better off actually kind of doing a sweep set, which would be to the side and not as hard as, as you probably are inclined to do. Um, does that make sense? So you're saying instead of an upward set, you're saying pull to the, to the side, like left or right. Yeah. And I mean, even an upward set is fine, but it has more to do with the pressure that you're applying. When, I uh, you. when I, when I set the hook with a fly rod, just for example, I favor a sideways set a little bit more, or even a line set, um, because I don't want the hook to pull out. And so most of the time somebody misses one with an octopus hook or those wacky rig hooks or a circle hook. Right. Most of the time they're missing them is because they're just popping the whole thing out of their mouth. The shape of the hook is actually right. designed to drag the eye out of the mouth at the corner and then just hang up. So they need to just be kind of picturing doing that in their mind. Um, that just makes slowly sense. dragging that thing. And then when they get that pressure, that's when they can really apply a, a good set and get into the drag. Awesome. I bet. So I, the next question says, I fish a lot of dense mats of hydrilla and want to utilize jigs, but find that they wind up getting tangled hang, heavily in grass. Am I using the wrong style of jig or am I fishing it wrong? I hear a lot of pros fish it this way, but they don't seem to get hung up on TV. Um. I mean, I guess everybody's different, man, but if it's, if it's truly dense, in other words, if it's something that requires heavy weight to get through it, mm -hmm. I'm not going to throw a jig in that personally. Um, now they do have skirted punching rigs, like punching weights with a skirt on it. Um, so if you just want the skirt, if you feel like that's going to help your chances for me, I would probably more recommend that. I don't fish a lot of that cover, but, um, I have caught some good fish in it, but for me, more often than not, I'm flipping like a brush hog or creature bait that's got a lot of action and flap to it, just like that skirt does. But I'm fishing it on, um, usually for me, an EWG. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'm going to use something straight and I'll be fishing that with like a one ounce tungsten or three quarter ounce tungsten. Um, and I usually favor uh, bobber stops so that it keeps everything kind of plugged together and I can flip it through some pretty thick stuff um i love throwing a jig i really do don't get me wrong but i just hate pulling giant wads of grass off every three seconds makes sense all right well next question is a fish finder a requirement to be competitive in the kbf series no definitely not um i'm not even sure fish finders required in you know Bassmasters or anything like that at MLF. I mean, I don't, I don't think it would be required. No, um, would it be recommended uh, by me? Probably. You know, um, there's a couple reasons why. I mean, I, I've got a really nice Lawrence uh, unit. Um, New Canoe team members have a deal with Lawrence, and they just make an awesome, awesome unit. Um, but I will just say that the main reason that I'm using it is to give myself a general idea of depth and temperature. 
Um, I am not as structural with a, a depth finder as a lot of other people are, and it's not because the unit's not capable of it. I'm just not very experienced with that still, you know, gravitating more from sure. rivers, of course. But knowing what that water temperature is, is critical on a lot of lakes for tournaments. Um, and then trying to find the water temps that are going to be more conducive. So I would strongly recommend getting, you know, even a, a smaller unit if you're going to be fishing tournaments. Um, I do know some guys that do really well without them at all, but they're pretty much going to always fish in less than six feet of water and, uh, you know, mostly target fish and that kind of thing. Yeah. It seems like that would also limit you six feet or less in summertime down here, dude, that just on any of these lakes that you're, you're talking really hot water. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the fish are, are either there or they're not. And if they're not, you might be up a creek without a depth finder. <laughs> What's the one piece of fishing equipment that every angler would be foolish to leave at home, not including safety equipment? Um, man. So I guess uh, if we're saying an angler, that could mean obviously not just a kayak fisherman, but a boater or somebody fishing off the bank, right? Um, you guys might think I'm crazy, but I, I think I would say a net, a landing net. Um because how many times have you heard somebody say, I lost it at the boat? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, last, last weekend, a uh, buddy of mine that, I, you know, three of us went out and fished two days straight together. And a buddy of mine lost his biggest one of the weekend because he was scrambling around trying to find his net. And apparently it had fallen in the lake somewhere and he lost it. And he ended up losing the fish. Now he could have maybe, you know, certainly lifted it if he hadn't been looking for the net. And I know a lot of guys that do great without one, but personally, I don't have a lot of those stories anymore. And it's because I've got a really, really good net and I keep it in the boat with me. I try not to leave home without it. Um, once I've hooked that fish, my conscience is not guilty if I put that fish in the net. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the reasons for that actually is uh, I also keep the fish in the net to calm down. So I'll, I'll net a fish and then I'll just basically let it chill out there beside my boat. Usually before I put it on a hog trough, um, if I want to get any pictures with it or pictures of it, or if I want to weigh it, I try to let that fish spend as much time in the water as possible. Um, so that when I release it, it's not shocked out. Awesome. Good tip. All right. The next question is, this is, seems to be a two part question. What are your go-to colors? And do you change your retrieves compared to when standing on shore or a larger boat? I guess they're talking about if you were fishing in a kayak, do you change your setup if you were on shore in a boat? Uh, go-to colors. I'll start with that one. Um, I've grown up fishing dirty water. So um, it is harder for me to make myself throw a green pumpkin or watermelon or something like that is much harder to make myself throw it. I gravitate toward a darker color always. Um, I would say, you know, here recently I've been probably beating the drum a little bit, but it's just been more for humor than anything, but a black and blue Senko <laughs> catches me <laughs> a heck of a lot of fish. Um, you know, if, if somebody had to say one bait across any body of water that is going to catch fish, 
for me, it's a weightless black and blue Senko. It might not catch me the biggest one, but I caught a nine and a half pounder on one three weeks ago. So it will catch big ones. Um, was that, was that the Senko that you posted a photo of to Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leftover pack I had that yeah. know, I burned through, I burned through a lot of them in the course of a year. Gotcha. Um, and then, um, as far as action baits, like uh, let's say a, a chatterbait or a spinnerbait, I really like white and chartreuse. I mean, it's just kind of old school classic. Um, one of the reasons I like it is because it's two different colors. It translates across uh, different water cl- clarity a little bit better than, say, a solid white or a solid chartreuse. Um, and I can always, you know, spray some dip and glow if I need to go a little crazier with my trailers or anything like that. Right. Um, I've got some other variations of everything, of course. I've got tons of tackle like everybody else does, but, but I would say those are my, my two primary patterns. That's awesome. So now, as far as uh, retrieve, I guess I need to yeah. address the retrieve and, rate. And this is actually my little brother, so I can kind of clarify that point. I think what he's mm-hmm. talking about is how would you treat the, the bait in the water given that you're re- retrieving from shallow to deep versus deep to shallow? In those two situations, yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, again, it depends on conditions. So if I'm uh, if I'm casting toward the bank, um, I think what we don't think enough about is the contour of the bottom. So you know, a lot of times people are thinking I'm casting at the bank, and I might go slow at first, but then you know after five feet, I'm just going to burn it back to me. Well, you're missing just a huge column of water there because rather than following the contour of the bottom, you know, you're basically only fishing one contour and then you're retrieving the bait the rest of the way. So I'm trying more and more lately to think about what line I'm throwing, but also um, how that bait's presenting in different depths and try to try to follow the contour where I would want it to be. Maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to fish two feet off the bottom. But if I am, I want to stay two feet off the bottom right. all the way back to me. Um, it's harder to do with some baits, but I would favor a slower retrieve for the most part in a kayak because um, the kayak is going to drift with the bait a lot of times. So if I'm throwing a crankbait or if I'm throwing a chatterbait or something that's got a lot of suck to it, right. it's, going to pull, it's going to pull me and the bait to each other. So I've got to slow that down a little bit. Um, if I'm fishing the opposite direction, which I think you had mentioned, like fishing more from the bank and casting out, which you know might be a bank fisherman or something like that. The biggest thing is the fall. So once you cast it out there, you got to give the bait time to get down into the water column that you're trying to fish. Um, so you know if it's really hot, you yeah, got to give it time. If it's really cold, you got to give it time and let that bait get down there where you're where you're trying to find these fish. Awesome. So last question, and then we'll get to the rapid fire. You found submerged trees on a reservoir. How do you know fish are there, and how would you fish it? I, I guess um, you wouldn't know they're fish there until you fish it. But <laughs> Well, I think maybe they're asking me – well, yeah, I was going to say, I think maybe they're asking, you know, how would I locate the fish and find out if they're there. And yeah. um, you can certainly use a graph to do that. For me, I'm going to use a bait to do that for the most part. Um, I think I've already made it clear that I'm, I'm not as good enough. I'm not good enough with a graph to always know the difference between bait and 
you know, fish. Um, and obviously bait usually means fish, but, um, make a long story short, you know, I'm going to normally use that graph to identify that the, that the structure is there, right? but I'm going to actually fish that structure to find out if there's fish there. Um, so if it's stumps, let's say it's stumps in 10 feet of water. Um, last year I caught a seven and a half pounder on some stumps in, in 13 feet of water. My whole goal was to, to cast past that series of stumps and to bring a bait down through there that if nothing else would get bit or get a follower or something that would just identify that the fish were there. And turns out I caught a seven and a half on the first cast down through there. But the purpose of me doing it that way was just to figure out if the fish were, were going to be on that structure at all. If I'm fishing trees though, flooded trees, which is very different than stumps and, and how it presents, I might be more inclined to throw something like uh rattle trap which i absolutely love crankbait or spinnerbait and actually try to deflect that bait off the side of the trees um seems like it triggers that response a lot of times if the fish are maybe three feet away and maybe they're just kind of submerged under a limb or they're just kind of hanging out if you can get that deflection and a little bit of a bang sometimes that'll get them to just trigger to attack it and again even if you don't hook them if you just know that they're there, it gives you something to target and you can change your presentations from there. Sweet. That's awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to have to get a depth finder now or, or fish finder, whatever you want to call it. Cause on Lake Talquin here in town, there's a bunch of submerged trees. So that will be, that'll be a good, uh, probably summertime hot water thing. Cooler water. It'll probably be a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree, man. And, and I mean, one thing I will say is you don't have to go crazy with depth in the summertime. That's a huge mistake. So, really, um, well, when I say depth, I mean, I still think you need to be, in many cases, six feet or deeper. Right. Um, but you don't have to be in 25 feet necessarily. Um, there's probably still always going to be fish at that 8 to 12 foot mark. Um and I would highly recommend a book called High Percentage Fishing. Um, somebody asked today, was that you, Walt? Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, that book is, is not a long read, and it's not expensive. I think I bought it on Amazon for like 15 bucks, and I read it in a week or less of just, you know, my spare time. And one of the things that it points out is, you know, you really just got to stack the odds for yourself. And so part of the stacking the odds means just give yourself uh, the greatest opportunity to catch fish, period. And therefore, you'll give yourself a, a better chance at catching big fish. And so I would recommend keeping that in mind. There's there's always going to be fish, always, no matter what time of year it is on most bodies of water. There's going to be some fish at that 8 to 15 pound mark or 8 to 15 foot mark. Right. Awesome. So let's hit these rapid fires, and then I'm going to get you on your on your way because we have taken up a lot of your time this afternoon. You ready? Sounds good. All right. First one: topwater frog or a trick worm? Ooh, trick worm. Okay. Okay. Chase. Power pole or trolling motor? <laughs> trolling motor. <laughs> fish with a fly rod and catch only one fish, but it's the state record, or catch a hundred fish one ounce under the state record on other tackle oh man that's a tough one state record awesome 
crank bait and jerk baits or buzz baits and spinning baits? Buzz baits and spin baits. Underspin versus bait caster. Y'all are making it tough on me. <laughs> uh, probably bait caster. Uh, last one, live or dead bait? <laughs> live or dead or live or artificial? I think uh, that was meant to say artificial. <laughs> okay, I was wondering, I was like, well, it says <laughs> dead bait, saltwater tactics. I'm going to go with artificial. Yeah, yeah. De- not dead bait, you sure? <laughs> well, I mean, it works. <laughs> it works on uh, redfish and yeah, trout and yeah, all that. Yeah, I love catching. Uh, I love catching catfish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice save, thank you, Everett. Well, guys, Everett, hang on the line. I'm going to wrap this up, but I just want to chat with you briefly afterwards. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Guys, I hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as I have. I know that uh, I am now debating my evening plans, afternoon evening plans, because I might be targeting shoal bass since they're so close to me. So hopefully you got as many options as we do, as I do here. But if you don't, get outside and do whatever it is you can. It's far too pretty a time of year for most of the country right now. Get outside, enjoy this springtime, late springtime weather, and uh, be sure to tag us in all your uh, outdoor adventures on Facebook or Instagram. Until next time, y'all be good.